folks, and welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host, bringing you progressive voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. This is a broadcast from America's heartland, from Des Moines, Iowa. And before I give you a rundown on today's program, let me uh, take a second to thank some of our small business partners, because we couldn't do it without them. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. You can order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Good food, great community. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or call Dr. Holding at 515-232-8766. Hey, before I tell you more about today's program, I want to remind you that the race to save the world is out. It came out on Earth Day. It's an award-winning climate film by Joe Gantz. Joe's an Emmy-winning producer, also known for American Winter, Ending Disease, and Taxi Cab Confessions. You can check out the, um, the film at the uh, Climate March website, uh, climatemarch.org. Uh, that'll give you details on how to watch the film. So, And we will talk about that during the first segment of today's program as we look at the some recent actions involving court rulings on nonviolent climate action. We'll also talk with, um, well, we'll meet the Mushroom Man. We'll talk with Will Lorenzen with a Jupiter Ridge Farm about shiitake mushrooms. Uh, third, uh, I'm going to tell you why I don't want to be run over by a car. Uh, me and uh, millions of animals. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you about that. Uh, and also a very interesting experience. Um, a headline that, well, it'll just capture your imagination, I think. We'll also talk about the word Karen, the name Karen. And um, maybe the male equivalent, Ken. Bridget B. will join us for that conversation. And finally, uh, Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to talk about May Garden question and answers. But first, I want to talk to you about the power of nonviolent action, something I've not been a stranger to. I've been involved with, uh, oh, who knows how many actions altogether, but six that have led to arrests. And, uh, you know, last month, uh, six Extinction Rebellion protesters in England were found not guilty of criminal damage to the uh, Shell Oil headquarters in London. And this was relevant to an action two years earlier, in April of 2019, when the uh, Extinction Rebellion protesters, they, they did a range of things. They poured uh, fake oil on the building, on the Shell Oil headquarters. They also glued themselves to the windows and doors. Uh, some of them broke glass. Uh, others climbed onto the roof and sprayed graffiti. And uh, that was apparently only a small piece of the action because there were Extinction Rebellion demonstrations all over London that day. And of course, uh, it may be obvious, I'll say it anyhow, they targeted Shell because uh, they claim that the company is contributing to the climate crisis in a big way, a very big and deliberate way. And uh, it was necessary to respond to the crisis by causing, you know, direct you know, damage to the perpetrator. Now, at the, um, the trial, I mean, it, it takes a while for these things to progress, of course, and so the trial just concluded last month, two years after the action. One of the protesters uh, said, and I quote, I believe if I don't do whatever I can to protect our Earth, 
to protect life on this earth, to stop the death and injury that is and will be happening, I'm committing a crime, a really serious crime. And I'm willing to break a window, to paint a message on a wall. I'm willing to break the glass on that emergency button, even if some say that's a crime. All right, so we could have a long conversation about whether or not breaking windows qualifies as nonviolent action. We'll save that for some other day. We've actually had that conversation on the show before, but we'll have it again. But here's what, here's what really fascinates me. The judge uh, instructed the jurors that uh, even if they thought the protests were morally justified, he, he told them there's no provision in British law that allows these protesters to commit the kind of criminal damage they were charged with. So he says to the jury, basically, you know, there's no way you can find them innocent. <laughs> so that kind of it kind of shocked me that a judge would tell jurors there was no foundation for a not guilty verdict. Well, you think that would bias the jury pretty hard against the protesters. Uh, there were seven women on the jury, five men. And after seven hours of deliberation, guess what they did? They chose to ignore the judge and they acquitted the protesters. That fascinates me even more. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and okay, keeping fascination upon fascination, do you know who their lawyer or lawyers were? Themselves. They went, as we say in this country, pro se. They represented themselves. <laughs> and uh, it just, uh, it's, it's an incredible case all around. And again, uh, you know, I, it's not the same in this country. <laughs> you, uh, the necessity defense was raised, and even though there was no provision in, the, in British law to justify it, the jury was convinced. And, uh, you know, we've seen the necessity defense raised numerous times increasingly in this country with regards to climate change. Um, I mean, one of the more prominent cases was the uh, the valve turners. And again, one of the valve turners is, of course, featured in the uh, film Race to Save the World. Uh, the um, three of the valve turners, there were five of them altogether, came before the Minnesota Supreme Court uh, three years ago. And uh, the court affirmed those protesters' right to use the climate necessity defense at that trial. And they were eventually acquitted of multiple felonies. Of course, one of the valve turners, uh, Michael Foster, uh, he did go to prison for six months. He's one of the people featured in Race to Save the World, in fact. So the, it, the necessity defense, it seems to have found quite, quite a lot of resonance in, in England. But in the U.S., it's still not widely accepted. I mean, I think what happened in Minnesota was an anomaly. Uh, I, I myself have been involved in several cases, um, some in which I was the defendant, others in which I was supporting people who were the defendants, uh, people who have used civil disobedience, nothing as extreme as breaking windows, um, mostly involving crossing lines, um, blocking traffic. When I say traffic, I mean bulldozers, not interstates. But, uh, you know, and again, climate necessity was, uh, was, was raised uh, several times, repeatedly, actually in cases I've been involved with, and never has it been taken seriously by the judge. I don't think any of those trials I've been involved with ever went to a jury trial, and maybe that's the difference. Because, you know, if the judge had ruled, if there had been no jury and it had been a bench trial, and that judge had ruled in the case of the Extinction Rebellion protesters, they would have been found guilty, I'm pretty sure. Hard to say for sure, but I, I would bet they would have been found guilty. 
So here, uh, you know, maybe, maybe part of the challenge here for climate activists who are hoping to make their case in the court is to make sure there is a jury trial. You know, even though we have had jury trials that also uh, didn't didn't accept the necessity defense. So the uh, the bottom line is this: uh, you know, civil disobedience really pushes the envelope. No question about that. It pushes the envelope both in the courts of law and in the court of public opinion. And, you know, we, it makes us uncomfortable. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're on the left side of the political perspective and you see protesters doing direct action in front of a healthcare clinic and their perspective is anti-abortion, you know, that probably makes us uncomfortable. I think the bottom line is, Civil disobedience makes us all uncomfortable. It even makes the people involved uncomfortable, even the people supporting it. Now, there, there, there are some exceptions. There are people who probably get a real rush out of it. Um, <laughs> I'm not one of those people. To me, it is, it, is, it, is, it is among the, it's in the category of last resort. Maybe not dead last, but toward the end of the list of tools that you can use to try to provoke social change, political change. For Gandhi as well. I mean, even though Gandhi is associated with um, direct action, with civil disobedience, with ending up in jail, that was to him like, like, like the uh, seventh or eighth uh, action you would take out of a list of maybe 10 or 12 as you move toward trying to uh, reform an injustice. So, you know, yeah, it, it is uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable, even those of us involved with it. It makes juries uncomfortable, judges uncomfortable. Now here's, you know, but the bottom line is, okay, the, uh, we would not have achieved the 1964 Civil Rights Act without the vast wave of protests that elevated the cause of racial justice and elevated the uh, discrepancies and injustices involved with uh, our voting system. Uh, you know, that, that didn't happen uh, because politicians suddenly got a clue. It happened because politicians could no longer resist the public pressure uh, and, you know, and, and that's what it's going to take with climate change, I'm afraid. And I think, I think it's happening. I think we're getting there. We're starting to see genuine political movement. And again, even as you see more movement, the beginnings of movement, you see more resistance within the industry, within, within those who profit from continuing to exacerbate the climate emergency. Now, one thing that is thrown into the mix here that should be considered is um, there have been a rash of uh, anti-protest laws passed, well, this year in response to the uh, BLM movement. Um, and, uh, of course, two years ago in response to protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline, other pipelines, uh, these bills are designed, these new laws are designed to make protest less appealing, to make uh, taking the risk of being arrested um, more serious to make, basically make it, a, make, it, make it a disincentive for anybody to want to do that. So, you know, I, I think at this point, um, things are so serious that it, it's got it's to be something, it's got to be a risk people are willing to take. And that's one thing I love about the race to save the world. It doesn't say you got to go out and do this stuff. It says that there's a lot of things you can do, legal challenges, marching, protests, uh, sitting on a tripod blocking a train. Um, there's a lot of things you can do. And people should consider what they can do. And if they can't do those things, they should try to support those who are doing them. Anyway, folks, um, 
We'll be back in a minute with more conversation here on the Fallon Forum. Will Lorenzen's going to join us. We're going to talk about mushrooms. Back in a minute on the Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham has been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yup, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. Back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Uh, thanks to our nonprofit partners who helped make this program possible. Uh, thanks to Bold Iowa, who have been building rural urban coalitions to address climate change uh, since uh, 2015, also working to prevent the abuse of eminent domain and to protect Iowa's soil, air, and water. You can learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. You can get more information about classes and workshops at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. That's birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, so hey, um, before I introduce you to our guest, I want to remind folks that The Race to Save the World is out. This is an award-winning climate film by Joe Gantz. Uh, Gantz is an Emmy-winning producer. He's known for American Winter. Uh, ending Disease, and Taxi Cab Confessions. You can check out more about Race to Save the World on the Climate March website. That's climatemarch.org. It'll give you details about the uh, film and about how to watch it. That's climatemarch.org. All right, so um, today I'm happy to welcome uh, Will Lorenzen with Jupiter Ridge Farm to the program. He's from Northeast Iowa, and he is, among other things, a mushroom farmer. Will, welcome to the program. Hi, Ed. How are you? I'm all right. So mushrooms, um, more and more people are understanding that this is a food product that um, they can grow. You don't have to buy a can and, uh, and dig them out of a can. You can actually grow mushrooms. Yeah. Um, mushrooms are fairly easy to grow. You know, a lot of people will try to, you know, play it up and, you know, I'm so smart I learned how to do this, but in fact it's, you know, it's decomposition. It wants to happen. It's one of the most easy and natural processes on earth. And I think just about anybody could do it with, you know, limited resource and a quick, you know, how to. Yeah. And shiitake mushrooms seem to be the most popular that I've, that in my, in my experience so far, that people are really starting to grab, grab onto that option. Yeah. Shiitakes are, are really just like a great product. They're easy to grow. Nutritionally, they're just such a dense, dense product. They're really high in protein. They're really high in compounds that help with cell regulation. Um, and besides that, they're delicious. They grow easily on hardwood logs, um, like 
oak or maple, and they can be readily available. So I've got an oak tree in my backyard. How do I convince that to grow me some shiitake mushrooms? Sweet talk it? Well, <laughs> yeah, yep. It's, uh, you know, just a, a gentle whisper and caress. But, uh, All right. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, it has to be fresh fallen. Generally, you do fell the tree. Uh, I tend to not like to take down an old living oak, so I like to follow logging companies and ask for permission through the landowner to get logs off the waste stream um, because sometimes, you know, some of these oaks are old and it's just a shame to see them go. Um, but what you do is you drill it, um, you fill the holes with sawdust on, uh, you wax them shut, and you wait about a year. So you fill the fill the holes with what? Uh, so it's sawdust spawn. It is a sawdust uh, spawn. Sawdust. Yep. Okay. It's sawdust that has been sterilized. That then has mycelium living in it. It looks like a brick of sawdust with the white kind of uh, okay. fiber running through it. And you can get that at your local grocery store? No, um, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, more creative people than me probably could, more sterile people as well. You could potentially buy shiitake and culture it out from stores from a store. But I order my spawn directly from a regional supplier called uh, Field and Forest, and I couldn't recommend them enough. Okay. And, and, and so then you... You uh, you drill holes into and how how big is this log? So people, I mean, we're not talking about a mat. I mean, oak is pretty heavy. We're not talking about a massive log that's hard to move. Yeah, yeah, and I find that the older I get, the smaller the logs I'm using. It's uh, <laughs> a little easier to throw them around. <laughs> um, but generally, you know, four. I mean, even as small as three inches to as wide as eight inches, mm-hmm. and then. Um, up to about 42 to 48 inches long if they're thinner, and then I'll even go as small as 32 inches if oh. I'm, you know, using a big log. So three to four inches in diameter and about three to four feet long. Yeah, that's okay. ideal. That's something you could you could throw those around all day, and, and it wouldn't tire out too okay. much. So you, you drill your holes, you put your saw, your your spore in, you know, your spore sawdust sawdust mix into there. And voila, you have shiitake mushrooms. No, I'll bet there's another step in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, you gotta, uh, you wax them. So it's like putting a Band-Aid on a wound. Once you've had that uh-huh. hole open where you put that sawdust spawn, that's a point where the log can lose moisture mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, competing fungi can get in. So you want to wax that shut. And then really the longest part of it is the waiting. They need, uh, depending on the variety uh, as little as six months, but up to 18 months for some of the slower-growing uh, varieties of shiitake to actually incubate the log. All right. And I, I presume that these are uh, productive during the warmer months of the year? Um, so we try to do all of our um, inoculation, and we're wrapping it up right now, but we try to do it in the early spring because we do also do uh, very diverse annual and perennial vegetable production. So... We try to schedule it so that we're not overlapping with our main big spring plantings. Okay. Um, so you can you can do them in the dead of winter if you have a relatively, you know, stable climate. You can put them in, um, and then they'll just sit dormant. And once it starts to warm up, the mycelium will run. Okay. But in northern climes, you wouldn't expect to be producing mushrooms in the winter unless you had um, going on inside, right? No, no. Yeah. Um, generally speaking, once you start getting lows in the 50s, 
uh, pretty regularly, and you get some of those first big, like, early summer, late spring storms, that's when they'll start yeah. fruiting on their own. But there are so many varieties that we do have some that are cold-weather varieties, and they'll fruit basically as soon as the lows are above freezing steadily. Wow. So you've got a three- to four-foot um, log. You've got a three- to four-foot log. You've got uh, three, to, three, to four, three to four inches in diameter. You've inoculated it. You've waxed the holes. How many mushrooms will that produce in a year? Well, uh, so the first year after it's incubated, it'll only give you a couple, but they'll be really nice, beautiful, stately mushrooms. But then it'll flush two to three times a year, every year after that, for about a year per diameter an inch. So those three to four inch logs will fruit for three to four years. And each fruiting actually gives you subsequently more mushrooms as the log, um, you know, is more colonized. So, you know, if I see a few good mushrooms coming off of the log, I incubate it. I know it worked. I'm happy with it. And it gets put in rotation for the next spring. Okay. So dozens of of mushrooms during the second year, second season? Oh, yeah. 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 Um, And I'd say roughly it's between, depending on the size of the log and the humidity and everything, um, you can you can end up with a third to a half a pound per flush per log. Okay. Um, right. So a third to a half a pound three times a season. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. And All right. Yeah. Um, we force fruit them, though. It's a trick where you can soak them and then uh, lean them up on a rail and have a more regular supply for our, our restaurant contracts. Okay. So are you finding that more individuals are interested in growing mushrooms and more restaurants are interested in purchasing? I mean, when you, when you, know, when you go to a restaurant and normally you think of the mushrooms you see at a restaurant, it's the standard ones you might find in a jar <laughs> for sale on a grocery yep. store. Or it's the portobello mushroom, in my experience. But are restaurants broadening their horizons and beginning to use shiitake mushrooms in their recipes? Um, Well, it all depends. There's always been, you know, higher-end restaurants that are looking for a special or will have something on their menu. But where we're really seeing a jump in is with more of like a, you know, second higher tier pizza places. Uh, We're noticing a lot of them are coming to us for shiitakes, which is a newer trend. Um, And I'm definitely pleased with it because, you know, it's not everybody's going to go to the nicest, you know, James Beard awarded restaurant every time, and then they shouldn't miss out on experiencing the mushrooms, though. Yeah, huh, interesting. So uh, how how much would you sell a pound of mushrooms for? If, if I was a restaurant, I wanted to buy some mushrooms. How, what's the price tag on that? Just curious. Well, for shiitakes, it can be 9 to 12 for a pound, depending on the uh, how big the bulk order is. And then for farmer's market, it ends up being about 16 a pound. Yeah, that's still cheaper um, than morels. And- <laughs> we're coming What's in that? we're coming into morel season here and that's still a lot cheaper than you would pay for a pound of morels oh yeah definitely yeah. anymore though if i've got time to hunt for morels i think i've got time to go fishing these days so. <laughs> very good so i'm just curious what else do you do at uh, jupiter ridge farm besides the mushrooms well what we do we've been expanding our mushroom program uh this year we in, in uh introduced two new species and a couple more methods. So we're doing a different type of lion's mane, and we're also doing hen of the woods. Lion's mane Um, and hen of the woods. Those are great names. Yeah, yeah. The hen of the woods is the mayatake. Um, They do grow native out here, usually on um, 
you know, you'll find them around old white oaks, sometimes old maples, mm-hmm. all hard maples, but they're, uh, they're pretty prolific fruiters and they're, they're another high, high value product. Um, and then we grow about 70 varieties of vegetables on two acres and we have 10 different types of fruit trees as well as a um, 50 by 50 patch of rhubarb and about, you know, 300 50, 50 by 50 by 50. That's a lot of rhubarb. Oh, yeah. Wow. And it's, uh, right. that's working out well for us. You know, the more you can perennialize, the more uh, sure. you're saving your back the next spring. Yeah, so you're, we, you're... we put the rhubarb in last year. You're, you're thinking a lot about your back, and I can't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, the rhubarb was also a nice patch. Um, we're a silt farm, so we, we farm on what's called the Sustainable Iowa Land Trust, and um, they own the property we farm, and where right. we planted the rhubarb used to be the old landowner's garden, so we yeah. thought it would be really nice to put it in a perennial crop. That's that cool. would just always be a garden. That's great. Well, I'm, I really enjoyed talking with you, and uh, it's fun to learn. It's exciting to learn that there's more interest in new and innovative uh, agricultural products, uh, in this case, uh, mushrooms. Uh, good luck with your growing season this year, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, and good luck at the farm yourself. Take care, Ed. Thanks, uh, folks. I've been talking with Will Lorenzen. He's with Jupiter Ridge Farm in Clayton County, Iowa. Back in a minute with more conversation on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Finley. You can also enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates, too. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host. Uh, thanks to all the folks who make this program possible, the, the folks who donate monthly, the people who support us with their, you know, with, with getting the word out, and who are local business partners as well. Uh, thanks to Architecture by Synthesis, where Mark Klipsham offers planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance homes and buildings. Architecture by Synthesis specializes in environmentally friendly designs, including highly insulated structures made from grain bins. That's architecture by synthesis. Hey, remember folks, uh, The Race to Save the World? It's out. It's an award-winning film. It's uh, focused on the climate emergency. Uh, Joe Gantz, the producer, Emmy award-winning producer, um, known for films such as American Winter, Ending Disease, Taxi Cab Confessions, you can check out the film at climatemarch.org for details about how to watch it. Again, that's The Race to Save the World. All right, so um, 
You know, there are some fun headlines out there, but maybe one of the best ones I've seen in a while. This is from an article in the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Quote, cupcake decorator fired for running over ex-husband's girlfriend wins jobless benefits. <laughs> you know, I don't usually read articles like that, but I just had to. And I'm glad I did because, uh, you know, apparently Marilyn, Marilyn Marin of Waterloo, Iowa, she was employed as a decorator at Scratch Cup Catering. And yes, I love the name Scratch Cup Catering. Um, the article says, quote, Marin had gone to the home of her former mother-in-law to speak to her ex-husband, Jacob. And while there, she allegedly struck uh, her her, the, uh, the husband's uh, girlfriend, Woods, in the face. Marin then tried to drive away, but Woods attempted to open the car door as Marin put the car in reverse. As Marin drove away, Woods was pulled under the vehicle and run over, landing in the hospital. With broken bones and internal hemorrhaging, Marin's trial on charges of serious injury by vehicle and leaving the scene of an accident in his schedule for June 15th. All right, so that's just, um, that's horrible on so many levels. And Mariner was fired. And yeah, if she'd been working for me, I would have fired her too. Um, she applied for unemployment benefits. The cupcake, the cupcake company challenged the claim. But the administrative law judge, Sean Nelson, ruled in favor of Marin, noting that even though the company had every right to terminate her, Quote, the misconduct Marin was punished for at work had occurred outside of the scope of her employment duties. So that's kind of, that's wild stuff. I mean, I, you know, I got to agree with the, the judge. <laughs> Even though you really don't want to agree, it's just, okay, that's probably the right right call. But I, you know, I want to move on to other incidences, incidents rather, of vehicles running over or attempting to run over people. It's disturbing. I mean, you, you look at the numbers. In 2019, Pedestrian deaths in the U.S. hit the highest level in 30 years. You want to guess how many? Well, I can't hear you, so I'll just say it. According to the Governor's Highway Safety Association, 6,590 6, pedestrian deaths in 2019. That's a 5% increase in 2018. 17% of all traffic deaths are pedestrians. Okay, so what about 2020? Well, we only have data in from the first six months of 2020. But in that period, just under 3,000 pedestrians were killed on U.S. roads in the first six months of 2020. And that's, about the, that's comparable to 2019, but throw this in, COVID. A 16.5% decrease in vehicle miles traveled, and yet we're still seeing... Uh, the highest level of pedestrian deaths in 30 years, in 2019 and 2020. The, the odds of being struck by a car in the U.S. are 1 in 4,292. And the odds of dying are, are, are about 1 in 47,000. You know, that seems like pretty good odds, right? Well, um, <laughs> the odds of getting struck by lightning are 1 in 15,000. So that's a... <laughs> yeah. You have a better chance, I guess, of getting struck by lightning. But the odds of being killed in a tornado are 1 in 5.6 million. We tend to worry about those things more. But, you know, being a pedestrian in America today is not a very safe experience. And I found that out oh, twice in the past week. <laughs> Once, uh, Kathy and I crossing a street um, on the edge of downtown Des Moines. A guy just, um, I mean, we were already halfway across the street. And he somehow came tearing around the corner and squeezed in between us and the curb. And he, 
he parked at the uh, at, at a, a gas station nearby. So we went up to him and confronted him about it, and he was belligerent and totally justified. He thought, you know, just and I, I, you know, I got his I got his license plate and I reported him. And maybe that's not a good idea. Maybe with uh, more and more people being allowed to carry guns without a permit. Um, uh, you know, without any background checks, maybe that's not a good idea. Maybe somebody who would run a, a stop sign like that and um, come really close to a couple pedestrians doesn't really mind pulling out a gun to defend his integrity, shall we speak, shall we say. Um, I don't know. Maybe that was a bad idea. It happened again earlier, uh, about a week and a half ago, too. And I, uh, you know, I, I just wonder... Um, I, I can't even tell you how many times I've had bad experiences with cars. Uh, of course, walking across the country, um, uh, big trucks that would go by you and spew a big cloud of black smoke just because they didn't like to see people walking on the road, I guess. Um, vehicles that brushed us in eastern Iowa during the Climate Justice Unity March. Uh, you know, check out the uh, documentary, Crossing the Divide, about that. You know, and as bad as traveling on foot is for humans, it's far worse for animals. Every day in the U.S., an estimated one million animals are hit by cars. Uh, I want to read to you a little bit from my book, Marcher, Walker, Pilgrim. This is about walking across the country. I write, you learn a lot about roadkill when you walk America's highways. There's often a local flavor to it. Today is Dead Elk Day. During two days in Arizona, the predominant victims were horny toads. On other days in the desert, lizards were the roadkill du jour. Later this month in eastern Colorado, it will be box turtles. On a gravel road in Nebraska, I will pass three dead red-headed woodpeckers in a two-mile stretch. And in Iowa, we will walk a back road slick with more flattened frogs than we can count. Mostly, though, roadkill is a smorgasbord rather than a featured special, astounding both in terms of variety and volume. It's impossible to say just how many dead animals we passed during 3,100 miles of walking, I conduct an unscientific survey on three occasions and, including smaller victims like lizards, frogs, dragonflies, and butterflies, I figure I will have viewed over 20,000 corpses by the time we reach the White House. That's a lot of carnage to experience in eight months. At first, my reaction is disgust, but as the miles roll by and the body count mounts, my mind and gut can't process so much death. Disgust gives way to sadness and eventually... To numbness, a similar trajectory to how Americans have adapted to mass shootings. At some point, the carnage becomes too overwhelming and you simply shut down. Besides humans, I'm skipping ahead here, folks. Uh, besides humans and maggots, another creature that loves highways is the turkey vulture. This ghastly looking bird is everywhere we walk, in every state, along nearly every highway and byway. Sometimes vultures circle over our heads perhaps anticipating the possibility that a marcher will end up roadkill. Why do humans find them so ugly? Perhaps because of their function as much as their appearance. Performing a job so unsavory it doesn't even exist in our lexicon. Given the estimated 1 million animals killed each day along America's 4 million miles of public roads, it's no surprise that turkey vulture populations have increased annually at a rate of 1.79% since 1990. Remarkably, between Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., I never see a single road-killed vulture. Many aspects of the life of a coast-to-coast -coast marcher are unique, among them experiencing close-up so many dead and mangled animals. 
I examine, photograph, and describe in detail some of these creatures not to be morbid, but to confront the reality that modern civilization exacts a high price on any life that strays into the path of its, quote, progress. We look away from roadkill because to pay attention not only compels us to confront the raw agony of death, but to examine our personal choices involving mobility, lifestyle, and so much of what underlies modern living. Various government and industry publications often remind us of the downside of cars and trucks, human fatalities, air pollution, carbon emissions, high insurance rates, urban sprawl, but rarely do we discuss the billions of non-human victims our car-centric culture destroys each year. It's easier simply to ignore roadkill, drive by quickly, and let the vultures clean up the mess even as we try to ignore them too. That's a bit from my book, Marcher Walker Pilgrim. Um, again, I, I digress from the conversation about pedestrians and traffic, but I think it's important to recognize that, um, yeah, our vehicle-centered culture has a big impact, not just on our lives, but on the lives of others as well. When we come back from a short break, Bridget B is going to join us. We're going to talk about the name Karen here in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks to our local business partners, including Noche Jazz and Cabaret, featuring both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Findlay. Noche also has a cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Check out Noche Jazz and Cabaret. And remember, folks, uh, The Race to Save the World is out. This is the award-winning climate film by Joe Gantz. Joe is an Emmy-winning producer also known for American Winter, Ending Disease, and Taxi Cab Confessions. Uh, check out the Climate March page. That's climatemarch.org uh, for details about how to watch the film. That's climatemarch.org. All right, thanks uh, again for tuning in to today's program. Later in the show, Kathy Burns going to join us. But uh, I'm delighted to uh, welcome my friend Bridget B. to the program. Bridget, how Aww. are you doing? I am doing really well. You're delighted. I don't know well, what, what that means. Okay, I, I'm mildly I'm, amused to be able to welcome you okay, to the program. Right. Is that, that better? A little, more, a little more honest, but you know, <laughs> I, I'm doing really well. How have you been? Well, I've been all right. Been uh, been a planting fiend this spring. The um, the uh, the uh, garden has been demanding a lot of our attention, but so have the issues. And so, hey, issues. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, my partner Kathy uh, was. Um, absolutely. Yeah. She has once been called. Karen. She has been called Karen. 
Um, <laughs> to her face? Yes, to her face. Because like, her name is Kathy and people were like, uh, Kathy No, Karen, it, was, it, was, it was a real Karening, yes. But um, I was fascinated to learn where the, word, where the term Karen came from. Apparently some um, unfortunate uh, middle-aged white woman named Jennifer Schulte. Uh, oh, you're talking about the Chicago, like the like. Um, yeah, the Barbecue Becky. Yeah, as she's yeah. called. Yeah, who called to report a black family using a charcoal grill in a park uh, multiple times right. over the course but of in a the few wrong hours. Area. In what? the wrong area, like yeah. they were totally supposed to be, like you know, like you know, 500 feet away. There was a charcoal area for them to use, and you know, so to her point, I suppose they actually were just very bad people. Like. You know, <laughs> Very I mean, you bad can't people. have your kids around people who would barbecue in the wrong section, yeah. have a good time with their families, and the, you know, like I mean, I mean, if you if you barbecue five hundred feet away from where you're supposed to, who knows what else right. you do? That's like it, an it, entry it, level crime. Like, they weren't breaking a law. At best, it's an ordinance of some kind. Right. And but you, yeah, you get a little irritated when someone just just mind your business. Like nothing bad is happening here. Sure, it might annoy you, but you you could really like walk right by and be less annoyed immediately. But I think she took like three, two, three hours just hanging out over by the, I guess, the worst thing in the world. Or yeah. It was pretty interesting. Um, but I, you know, to your point, I think you said that that was like the kind of maybe the, the start of the idea of Karen. Um, yeah. And she was Becky, I guess. But, you know, the close, idea close enough, all close kinds enough. of people, yeah. right? There was one little girl that got, they called the cops about water. She was like selling bottled water. And I don't remember <laughs> what name she got, like, um so yes, that that stuff has always happened, but like I don't think that the idea of calling, especially from African American or I mean I just say black, from black women, we've always like kind of talked that way. <laughs> like you know, like um, Becky's always been kind of a term. Like in Beyonce's Lemonade album, um, there's a, a reference to like you better call Becky with the good hair. Like you can <laughs> like, you can use this fake persona to like demean someone and like but you always pick the right name you can't just be like it's got to be the right thing like you know what a becky is you know what a karen is so you certainly are what? trying to you're trying to what about what about all the, what about all the good karen qualities of like a name what about is, all the good karens and beckys are. of the world you know <laughs> the, the karens and beckys who care who fight hard for the right stuff who don't just call on black people because they're trying to cook a meal for their family in a park what about those yeah, well, I mean, four Karens and Becky? She probably did it because she did it because she had a bad day. Probably it's something else that happened before that, and something else. And maybe one of them did get smart with her, and it just escalates to a point, right? But that the optics of that are are certainly not helpful. And yeah. you know, she does have to stop and ask herself, "Have I ever treated anyone that looks like me like that?" I don't know that answer for her, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I I I lean on the side of probably not. So why why is it? It seems that uh, that middle aged white women are the ones being called out for these um, you know questionable actions uh, in some cases, but yeah, you don't hear so much about men. Is is there like uh, a male? Well, I mean, like, are you really gonna? Okay, I think we can all like what middle aged white women are the people who act like this. It's just it's just what you know they've been. Um, reinforce how else do you get what you need how else do you get the ketchup all of the ketchup the extra ranch without paying for it how else do you get your kid into like whatever college like you go in and you demand it and then you escalate it like they, they've been rewarded for decades for you know if to some degree it's running a household but on another <laughs> it's, it's disregard for other people's um right to enjoy their lives without you and your undue influence um and that has just been a thing uh Black people do get called Becky or Karens and all that stuff. Absolutely. I, I mean, I can send you some links if you want to see them. But it's much less 
common because black people are busy trying to like get to their third job or whatever. Like they're not really trying to get in other people's business. Like it just doesn't like, it's just so easy not to get involved. And obviously there's times too, but that time is not in a barbecue at a park. Like yeah. you at a park that, you know, she didn't own that. It's not her house. Isn't it? She walk on. Yeah. So and that's uh, my opinion, right? Yeah, like that technically, those but again, but again, but again, why, 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 why is it like a fire marshal? I don't know. But why do we have these memes that, uh, that focus on the, the, the Karens? But I mean, I, I, there, there's plenty of racism out there to go around. There's plenty of men who probably do something similar. Where is, is and there, I don't think that like I think it's important to point out I don't think that whether she's ever she didn't do that because those people were black like with an with a like an affirmative decision because they're black and breaking the law therefore I will uh, they just happen to be black and I think a lot of people don't realize that you know all of these um, independent um, not purposeful decisions just somehow add up to this disparate impact like. It is the case, and that just means we all have stuff to work through and think about how we but, interact with each other and but, and just really kind of take a breath first. But, and then, you Bridget, know. Bridget, though, aren't you – you might be being a little generous there. Uh, I mean, I look at the incident in Central Park where the uh, the uh, black dude is uh, bird watching, um, and um, <laughs> I think uh, – I can't remember now what happened, but the woman um, – a woman started – she called the police on him, and – and claim claim that, that yeah, he was threatening. I think, like, yeah, yeah, and claim and, and he claimed that he was threatening her, and he just was standing there in, as well, innocent yeah, and sweet as ever. And absolutely, yeah. I, well, I'll, I mean, that's a whole different level. That's absolutely like, you know, that's um, yeah, that's a whole other level of manipulation and a, a different. That gives me a whole different feeling entirely. She okay. was using her fragility or perceived fragility or or per, her, what she knew she had as far as her. Her, um, you know, societal value as a, you know, pretty white woman. Well, and, 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 and her perception. She's using that against him as a weapon. And that's, that is, a, she, like, there's no two ways to get around it. When the cops show up, even if they don't want to, they're going to think he is in the wrong. Right, right, sure. Like, it's yeah. just the way it's kind of going to go. And, you know, if I walked up and I saw two little kids fighting and there was an adult involved, I would assume it was the two little kids that, you know, were fighting with each other, not the adult. And one, right. the, you know, you just make assumptions and. For right or wrong, you just you do you do, and we have a narrative in our country. We have a history in our country where these are some of the you know the the steps that people don't maybe even know they're making. And yes, you're right. I want to be generous because um, I don't know. Like if you like you probably noticed, but like I'm black, so I don't <laughs> want to think that like everybody <laughs> is out here doing this stuff to be you know nefarious. I want to think that people just don't know what that cumulative effect is but that, you know, you walk in your apartment and somebody wants to ask if you live here, where you live, where do you live? Like, I've never seen you. I know everybody, like, I don't want to talk to you. I'm tired. Like, I don't have, I don't owe you this. Um, you know, and then, yeah, there's this like duty to yeah. just like take it, you know? And I don't think, you know, I think a lot of people are over it. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll see. It's, uh, it's going to be an ongoing conversation, especially with some of the anti, anti, um, protest and blm legislation passed this year sure. hey bridget i gotta run to a break uh we gotta have you back on some time to dig into some of the yeah, stuff a little absolutely more. it's always a good time appreciate you joining us folks have been talking to bridget b when we come back from a short break kathy burns will be with us we're going to do our our monthly garden q a what to look for in may and what to be careful about back in a minute gateway marketing cafe is des moines locally owned grocery and specialty food store with over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online 
and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks for joining us today, folks, and thanks to our local business partners who helped make this program possible. Uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, it's Des Moines' locally owned and specialty grocery store. Uh, you can now order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. Their cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service as well, seven days a week, and you can also use their floral services and uh, their catering service. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Well, I'd like to welcome Kathy Burns to the program. Kathy is with Birds and Bees Urban Farm, and we have a segment every week about the urgency of uh, turning your yard into dinner. Because hey, you can't eat grass, can you? Well, <laughs> well so our, I, cat our cat eats grass. It never ends very well. No, <laughs> um, we won't. We won't go into details no, or any please. pictorials. Oh no. <laughs> um, yeah, the the. Climate change is making growing your own food a more urgent thing. And we're just happy to see more and more people learning to grow food in their yard and not just to grow it, but to use it, uh, enjoy it, and preserve it. And so, I believe once a month we do this uh, kind of Q&A thing on what's happening now and what kind of questions do people have and and what uh, what some of the answers might be to those questions. What, uh, what have you been finding uh, this week, Kathy? Well... As usual, and, and there are many, many, many questions, how soon can I plant tomato plants in the ground? Is it still too early? This person lives in Council Bluffs, Iowa. And, you know, the wisdom or the common knowledge is <laughs> Mother's Day and after. Uh, we've already got ours in. Yeah, we got them in a week ago, <laughs> late April. You know, and we're in Des Moines, so same same latitude. And yeah, latitude really varies. I mean, it really depends on where you're at. Elevation impacts it as well, of course. Uh, but um, our, our philosophy is to plant like they vote in Chicago early and often. And I go, I know, I know. If you don't have your own seedlings, if you if you don't have your own seeds, then yeah, you're going to be maybe wasting some money. But I tell you, we never ever have a crop fail. No, from, we've from never lost. Weather. We've never lost a crop. And watch the forecast. That's you know, I, we're we're well over frost. It's going to get into the. It might be down to forty one one of these nights this week. But everybody's fine in our latitude putting the tomatoes in. If you're a little north, maybe wait. Um, people have some tricks to put them in early. They put the milk jugs around them and things. Different schools of thought on that. But I think the most important thing with tomatoes, or the few most important things, are. Um, yeah, make sure you plant it deep enough. You want it. You want to go up to the bottom leaves so that those mm -hmm. that stem can become a conduit for 
you know, vigorous root growth. Mm -hmm. And then you want to make sure you've, um, you've mulched it. Uh, we, we make a little basin around our plants and then mulch it with straw uh, and then water. The, the straw, all, not only does it keep the weeds down, but it keeps the blight from splashing up onto the foliage. Uh, right. And then also, I mean, probably the most important thing is don't plant in the same place two years in a row. I had a lot of good conversations <laughs> with folks coming to get their seedlings this weekend about um, rotating the rhubarb. Or, sorry, rhubarb is the next question. <laughs> their tomato crop and watching for blight. So yeah. please do watch for the blight because it lives in the soil and yeah. you want to plant it. Legumes are always a great follow-up planting to tomatoes. The next question, uh, what is my rhubarb doing? Should I leave it or cut those off? They're talking about the seed stalks or seed pods that they see coming up. I, I found some good information. You know, our answer is cut them off or get rid of them. Um, Purdue University Extension had some really good information, not just about why why to do that now, but for the future of your plant. Um, of course, if allowed to mature seed, the resulting offspring of the plant are less desirable than the mother plant. So some people say, well, mm. let that go to seed and then, then you'll get more plants. Mm. No, your rhubarb's gonna spread from the roots And this is why anyway. people always use a root cutting to start a rhubarb plant and not mm -hmm. seedlings. Okay, mm -hmm. good to know. And it also, um, the, the offspring will be more likely to bolt early as well. Mm. Um, so so you're, basically you're producing an inbred. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also you don't course, do dividing the crown or getting a cutting out of there. And then you can share uh, every four to five years, it says, can help rejuvenate the plant and reduce bolting. And they also add that another question about rhubarb is um, whether the flowering leaf, whether the flowering makes the leaf stalks poisonous. The answer is no, mm -hmm. according to Purdue University Extension. Um, leaves are poisonous. The the um, stalks will not be poisonous, but the leaves. It says um, the leafy blade portion is always poisonous due to high levels of oxalic acid. Although so, once uh, years ago, I had I let my chickens out to run for the fall, and they just ate the entire uh, remaining leaves on the rhubarb plant with no ill effect. So maybe it doesn't affect chickens or chickens eat some weird. Things. They eat some weird things. They have gizzards. Yeah. I wish I had a gizzard. Well, that's what your daughter said years ago. Didn't she have a fit because she wanted a gizzard? I wouldn't say she had a fit, but she admired the chicken's ability to eat whatever they wanted to. Dirt, worms, rhubarb leaves. Uh, here's, here's something I saw with a, a photo. I saw a photo of somebody's uh, tomato seedlings. They were still only a few inches high, which is fine. But uh, the photo showed leaves at the top. Maybe they had their, their kind of several leaves above the the first leaves they had splotchy leaves at the top they didn't ask the question about that but I also saw or about the next thing I also saw yellow first leaves at the bottom and the soil looked really wet so the question was my tomato plant started to yellow on the bottom leaves last week today I noticed these white dots on the leaves and they're talking about the top leaves Anything I can do? I did put them outside for a few hours at a time on three different days last week. Maybe too much sun, so I think two things are going on. What do you think, Ed? I don't know. I'd have to see them. It almost sounds like it could be an early type, some kind of early blight. Don't know. I was thinking overwatering. Could be overwatering. Because the, the soil looked really moist, and I didn't know mm -hmm. if they had drainage. Yeah. Sometimes your the pot that you put it in has drainage, but the container that you put those pots in mm. doesn't have drainage, so you need to watch for overwatering. 
And mm. then um, also... Could, yeah, it could also be uh, just the, if they didn't harden them up properly, if they put them out too fast, too yeah. much sun all at once, that could... I, I've never seen that cause spots. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it causes the, other problems, but... Uh, but but the, uh, the description was, I put them outside for a few hours at a time on three different days. Hardening mm-hmm. off needs to be a little more progressive than that. And you, you start them with a little bit, and then you progress through the week to a full mm. uh, a full amount of sun. But uh, I would say, you know, whether or not that's the cause of their leaf spotting, yeah. they should probably think about a more systematic way of hardening off their plants. Yeah, and, and, and more, uh, more cautious watering. Tomatoes do not like to be drowned. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, Ed, you talked to me about this one this morning. It's the It was the photo of the plants with all the plastic. Somebody says their tomatoes are planted. They say, I moved the plants from the house directly to their individual greenhouses in the garden. <laughs> they, I never bother to harden the plants. I will take the clear plastic off in a week and set the cages within the culverts. Um, Wow. So this person is not hardening <laughs> off, and they have plastic tubes wider than the tomato, kind of like the milk jug thing, but they're calling them their individual greenhouses. This is something that they purchased. Well, I don't. I wasn't clear on whether it was purchased well, or, or um, you know, uh, jerry-rigged from old scrap plastic laying around. I think it might have been that. Maybe. I'm not sure. But, maybe. But still, that much plastic. <laughs> I don't know. I, if I was a tomato, I'd rather live free. Um, <laughs> it looked uh, like a lot of work. It, did look, it looked like a lot more work than hardening off, honestly. And yeah. you know what hardening off is good for? Your legs. Well, Exercise. well, depends where you are. <laughs> depends whether if they're in your basement and you've got 10 stairs to get to the, uh, the hardening off zone. Yeah, you can have a lot of, uh, you can, you can. Have your own stairmaster without the uh, monthly uh, <laughs> monthly we, uh, health club fee. And we do, <laughs> we do. So I don't know. I would rather harden off than mm. than put a big chunk of plastic around every tomato plant that I plant. Yeah, and and it, it looks like they were covered with almost like cellophane or some kind of bubble uh, wrap or something. Some kind of plastic over the top too. But you know, I mean, again, in, in central Iowa, I can't speak for places further north, but uh, we've had them out for. In the ground for a week and a half now. Uh, this is May. We're we're talking today on May third, and they've had no trouble. Uh, we, we we put them in right after that last cold snap. Yep. And that seemed to that seemed to be fine. They really the ones that are in the ground now are definitely showing more vigorous growth than the ones that are still sitting in pots. They are. That's a, yeah. another advantage to getting them in the ground. And watch the temperature. If you if you plant them a little early. And you keep watching the temperature, and it looks like you might get close to a freeze. You can always add some hoop of some kind and put put a sheet over that for the night. They'll be fine. The other thing we do is we, we add some blood meal, as some some nitrogen jump start, to, you know, and some natural component that will give them that mm-hmm. that boost, that feed they need to get going. Uh, blood meal really helps with that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, maybe one more quick question: Can I just use the compost from Metro Waste? To plant directly into, I'm changing my setup and raised to raised beds and checking if I can just fill them with compost or is it too strong? And to be clear, this is um, you're referring to Des Moines Metro Des Moines waste Metro compost. Waste compost, and that compost situations vary from city to city and state mm-hmm. to state. But what's uh, I, I don't uh, what's your response to that? I don't uh, have a good I, feel for that one. I think it sounds too rich a soil to plant some of the vegetables in. I don't think. Um, I think they would uh, plants that want a good root 
might just be busy with their leaves and not give you a good root. I'm not sure. What do you think? I don't know. My, um, I, I was thinking of it from a different angle. I, I'm suspicious of some of the uh, city-based composting services. I mean, I'm glad they're doing that. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, sometimes you find a batch that has lots of little bits and pieces of plastic in it. Uh, the the bags sometimes and maybe that's not happening anymore. I know in Des Moines now they use uh, you know cardboard what a paper paper sacks, and that's obviously going to be just fine in terms mm. of decomposition. But if there's plastic stuff going in there, that's that's not going to compost very well. Yeah, and so I'm a little I'm a little suspicious. I'm also okay. So what else goes into those bags? that goes into the compost. Mm-hmm. Chemically treated lawns, um, lots of walnut leaves, oak leaves. You know, we're pretty selective about what we put in our compost. I'd be more concerned about the quality of the compost than, than, uh, than using a lot of it. We, we use a lot of compost, uh, probably 16 bins a year, plus um, uh, over, over 100 <laughs> um, buckets of, five-gallon buckets of horse manure, plus some sheep manure. So we use a lot of compost and, and manure. We mostly apply it in the fall, though. Yeah, it mostly goes on the garden in the fall when it has a chance to decompose mm-hmm. and, uh, and and doesn't burn any plants. Um, yeah, there's only a few occasions where we, where we might have to add some in the spring, and we do that. We make sure it's not too hot mm-hmm. and that it's blended pretty carefully. So my, my concern would be more about the quality of the compost. Uh, not that I, I, I'm glad cities are doing that, but I think it has to be done very judiciously. And if you're including chemically treated products, walnut leaves, oak leaves, and any abundance at all, and especially if you're including plastic, then you've got an inferior product. Agree. There you go. That's it. <laughs> That's it for the Q&A this month. All right. Hey, thanks again for joining us, folks. Um, again, when we, uh, when we come back next week, uh, we'll have a new set of guests and a new set of conversations. Hope you continue to stick with us, um, helping us uh, promote the alternative to oh, some of the radical right stuff you can hear 24-7 on the mainstream stations. Anyway, thanks to our guests today, Will Lorenzen, uh, Bridget B., and Kathy Burns. Uh, thanks to uh, Brother Trucker for providing the music downtown as our bumper music. Thanks to our production team of Sherry Herdina and Kathy Burns. And again, you can follow this uh, program on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast platform, or on radio stations in Iowa and across the country. Thanks again for tuning in. This is Ed Fallon, your host on the Fallon Forum.